The next entry in this, the necessity of Corbenic audio journal series is on the topic of typology. That may be something you've heard of before, or it may not. Um, depends on the Christian tradition that you come from. Typology tends to be something connected to the ancient church, which is also why in my own Lutheran tradition, there's been a very uneasy relationship with typology. Um, and that's something we'll briefly get into a little bit here in, in a moment. But typology to kind of continue with that analogy I had with the last entry, um, that it is an important lens. If we want to use the analogy of the spectacles from uh, National Treasure, the, the film, which is, uh, so you have Benjamin Gates gets these uh, very particular spectacles from Benjamin Franklin and if you've seen the movie, if not, you can easily look up an image of Benjamin Gates, the character, with these spectacles. And the spectacles have, I think, like six lenses of different colors. They kind of work like 3D glasses. Um, you shift the spectacles, different combinations of colors reveal different aspects of the back of the U.S. Constitution in this um, piece of ad 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 adventure. And so Benjamin needs to manipulate these glasses in such a way as to get the clues that he needs to find what he's looking for and also to be able to read the map, which has different dimensions to it. I think it's a really good analogy because typology is one of those very important lenses in understanding scripture, in the exegetical process of engaging scripture. Um, because it has its origins really as a discipline in the early medieval church, the earliest days of, of the church, actually, not just the medieval church, but even before then. Um, it's often thought to be a synonym for uh, the literary device known as allegory. And that would not be fair to typology. Typology is very much more than allegory. Um, allegory is a very deliberate kind of literary device, and usually the author will clue in his readers right away that he is going to be engaging in an allegorical narrative. Uh, probably the most famous allegory in uh, Christian literature would be John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, 
and because the medieval church and the the pre-medieval church engaged in allegory almost obsessively by the time the reformation came and then the post-medieval church um was 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 established allegory in the way that it was used by the early church fathers and the medieval church fathers was largely rejected which is fair enough a lot of their allegory isn't useful but typology is not allegory so that begs the question what is typology and to explore this i'm going to more or less riff off of probably the most uh famous of the lutheran theologians to engage with typology his name was horace hummel and uh he was uh, a leading figure in the 20th century Missouri Synod. Um, but for reasons that we'll take a look at in a little bit, because he embraced typology at a time that it was quite unfashionable in the contemporary Lutheran uh, community, a lot of his work was more or less set aside um, he remains a rather underappreciated Lutheran theologian, which is unfortunate because um, his uh, Old Testament survey, the word made flesh, to me is second to none. It is my favorite of the uh, various introductory texts for the Old Testament because of the way he engages with typology and something else that we'll look at in the next episode called Metahistory. Um, another leading theologian of the 20th century that I also go to when it comes to typology is, uh, is uh, Austin Farah, who was an Anglican priest uh, he was very good friends with C.S. Lewis and, in fact, married him and Joy. Uh, he died in the 70s, I believe. Uh, he was ticketed for higher things in the Anglican Church, perhaps even to be Archbishop one day. But because, like Hummel, he, because he en embraced typology as one of his um, important ways methodology part of his methodology for engaging scripture at a time it was very unfashionable also in the anglican church um he was largely left maybe not as underappreciated or unappreciated as hummel in the lutheran church but certainly underappreciated and uh it it hurt his career but not his legacy um, because a lot of people 
are rediscovering Farah. He had a very unique mind, a very imaginative way to engage with scripture. And to be fair, um, I don't agree with everything that he, he went about doing. He had a very in- interesting approach to the inspiration of scripture, which maybe we'll get into at some point in another um, uh, entry. But that being said, he's actually my favorite of all the typologists in the contemporary uh, church. So um, we will probably be engaging with him more later on because he tends to be more specific. His typology is really important to engage with in its context. And his typology comes out in his commentaries on Matthew and Luke and also his uh, commentaries on um, the, the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. So we'll get into his stuff much later on. But right now what I want to do is I want to riff off of Horace Hummel's treatment of typology, which is in his book, The Word Made Flesh, at the very beginning, which is a good idea because he wants to establish straight on that typology is important. Indeed, it's essential to doing good exegetical work and to have to allow scripture to be understood, to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate scripture in all of its dimensions. So what does Hummel say about typology? Typology is really the method of describing the unity of the Old and New Testaments. When you look at typology in its very unique way, it presents to us the full picture of the arch narrative of Scripture, which is Jesus. And Scripture itself uses typology. So uh, the, the word actually shows up, not as typology, it shows up as the word type. So it's very important that we engage with this method, with this aspect of exegesis. Um, So, as Hummel says, both the word and the method are found in biblical usage, and I've got some Bible verses in a moment that I can provide for anyone that would like to look that up for themselves. Um, But it, it is important to note that how typology is understood, how it is used, does differ from Christian tradition to Christian tradition. So, how a Catholic-minded Christian uses typology is going to be different from the Protestant usage. And then how a Lutheran and a Roman Catholic are going to use typology are going to differ, just as it would differ between someone who is in the Calvinist tradition 
or someone who is in the evangelical tradition. But the important thing to remember is that typology is not allegory. And there are those that will make that charge, that will make that accusation. Um, but usually when they do that, there's something else. There's some other, I don't want to say agenda because that sounds a bit um, malicious. But in the end, you know, everybody uh, has agendas. Uh, there, are, there are good agendas and there are bad agendas. And we just need to figure out when someone uses typology, what is their agenda? If you use typology properly, then, you, then as my professor told us in Old Testament, your image of Jesus at the end of your usage of it will be stark. It'll be clear, crystal clear. It won't be fuzzy. People won't have to squint to see, is that Jesus or not? Um, so, Hummel tells us that one of the agendas of those who tend to dismiss typology um, tend to be what are known as historicists. And this school of thought believes that the meaning of the text is entirely limited to its occasion or audience. So they are so aware, hyper-aware of the historical context of something in Scripture that they are unwilling to allow anything else to inform the understanding of that text. And that is a mistake. But at the same time, and this is why we don't want typology and allegory to occupy the same space, typology is not just mere correspondence or analogy or symbol. Typology has to be rooted in genuine history. And, and I would say history here with a capital H. History, the arch narrative. The, the, the story of creation as lived out by human creatures, as experienced by those made in the image of God. And it's important, too, that typology is, is organic to, to the text. If you're engaging with an aspect of Scripture and you have to try to make it typological, that's contrived. That's not typology. Typology happens naturally. You'll be reading the text, having hopefully prayed a section of Psalm 119 or some similar prayer, because it is God's word that we're engaging with, and we want to engage it with the eyes of his Holy Spirit, who illuminates the text for us. We don't want to read into what is known as eisegizing. It's the opposite, opposite of exegesis. Eisegesis is reading into the text instead of bringing out of the text. The moment you're reading into the text something that you want to be there, you've broken a rule and you've 
also misused typology and fallen into the very thing that the critics of typology say exists regularly, and we don't want to do that. Um, but at the same time, the, these theologians, this, this school of thought that says what we read in Scripture is all that there is at its face value. Um, you can't do that either. And the type is always in the Old Testament. The anti-type is always in the New Testament. So you're reading Old Testament passages if, if one refuses to look beyond what is being said there when it's obvious or it becomes obvious that there's something more underlying the text, then you are also misusing typology in the sense that you're not using it when it sh is clear that it should be used. We have to understand that the ultimate meaning of typology is that it's sacramental. And those in the Catholic traditions, so Lutherans, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox, this is easy for us, or it should be easy for us, because we have such a rich approach to the sacraments. And what do we mean by we, by when we say sacramental? So sacramental means that there's always some visible object, some visible scenario. And that object or scenario, person, place, event are informed by the word of God. So you, you have, so here we would set up a dichotomy of um, typology and so the type and the anti-type the type found in the Old Testament, the anti-type found in the New Testament has a similar relationship as the word does to the sacrament. Um, it has a very similar relationship to prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy. So we want to kind of think in those terms when we're approaching typology. Um, now it's very important to say here that typology does not stand against prophecy and fulfillment. And this is something that often happens when it comes to critics of typology, is they will pit typology against prophecy, as if the two are mutually exclusive. When in fact, they are two sides of the same coin. They're, they're basically two different ways of saying the same thing. And in both cases, you must have the visible word. Okay? So in prophecy, the visible word is the prophet. 
in typology, the visible word is an element of creation. Bread, wine, water, history, capital H, history, and all that goes with it. So places, people. But all of these are nothing without the inspired word to give them meaning. Neither prophecy nor typology. Typology is only emphasized over prophecy where the matter is, and I'm going to quote Hummel here, more specifically historical, unquote. So typology is a kind of indirect prophecy, if you will. Whereas the prophecy that we're more familiar with as prophecy is verbal and it's direct. The audience is right there. Whereas with typology, the audience that initially hears the type may not even realize that it is a type until later generations read it back. They're reading the scripture from a hundred years ago and something is happening in their present time. And now what seemed to be merely an event turns out to be God having spoken in the past about something going on right now. So how can we actually quantify this? I'd like to give you three examples. The first example is Bethlehem. So in Micah 5.2, we have an example of direct prophecy where the prophet tells his audience that the Messiah will be born to the little forgotten town of Bethlehem. Okay, so that's a very specific prophecy. But the prophecy is abstract. It names a town, but it doesn't give you anything else. It doesn't give you the who. It doesn't give you the when. Now we consider, so that's an example of direct verbal prophecy. This is going to happen in this place, but there's missing information. In Genesis 41, we see a type of Bethlehem. Okay, so we have Joseph being raised to his station by Pharaoh. And we're told, Moses tells us, that it effectively becomes, when the famine hits the land, it effectively becomes the hub where if you want to buy grain for bread, you have to go to Egypt. You have to go to David in particular, because Pharaoh sets him up as in charge of the granaries for the purpose of making bread. And not just for Egypt, but Moses tells us famine was hard in all the lands. And so all the lands were coming to Egypt for bread. So effectively, because in Hebrew, the, the, the place name Bethlehem translates literally to house of bread. Okay, so Egypt is literally at that, for those seven years, the house of bread 
for all the lands and nations and peoples that are living in the vicinity of Egypt where that famine is striking. Okay. And Joseph here is the one disseminating, for all intents and purposes, the bread of life. Because if people don't have food to eat, they're going to die. So Joseph here is a type of Christ. And Egypt is a type of Bethlehem, quote-unquote. And David or and and Joseph is in charge of the bread of the grain that will allow folks to make bread so they don't die. So they have food. So you know, Jesus in John 6 says, I am the bread of life. So here we have a type. We have a very specific historical event, a famine in ancient Egypt. We have names, we have places. We sort of have dates because, of course, Moses does give us years. He doesn't give us an exact calendar date. But we do have the information that we need that we can calculate dates um, in terms of when Joseph lived relative to his father. Because we know about Isaac, we have the, 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 the tables of the generations, which include ages and things like that. So we can calculate to some extent the date thereabout. And we have archaeology as well. So that's an example of typology in relation to prophecy. Another example. So we have the martyrs of Bethlehem. Okay, so in Jeremiah 31.15 which is quoted by Matthew when Herod orders for all the uh, children, I believe it's two and under, to be slaughtered because he hopes to catch this newborn Messiah in there. So we have Matthew, when this happens, quoting Jeremiah third, 31 um, about the weeping women of Rama. And it may not seem like that's, and you know, what, what does this have to do with Bethlehem? Well, if you do some digging, uh, you find out that um, Rama is connected to Rachel, and that Rama uh, was a um, was in the region of the tribe of Benjamin, and Bethlehem is where Rachel is buried uh, within that part of land with uh, that was given to the Benjamites. And so the women of Bethlehem are connected to Rachel, to the Benjamin tribe, because Bethlehem is where Rachel is buried. And so that prophecy that's how that prophecy comes to be associated with the the weeping women, weeping mothers of Bethlehem. Now that prophecy of Jeremiah, until the massacre happens, it's it's a it's a vague, abstract prophecy. We have again 
a general place name. The original context of the prophecy was the Babylonian exile. Uh, so it doesn't really have until the massacre happens connected to King Herod. This prophecy is is definitely a bit more obscure, and it's only by the Holy Spirit that Matthew is able to connect these two things. Whereas its type, which is often pointed to, is found in Exodus 1, at the end of Exodus 1, when the Pharaoh orders all the newborn male Hebrews to be killed because he sees that the Hebrew nation is growing in strength, that the men in particular are very hardy, they're robust, they're strong. He's afraid that they're going to rise up in rebellion against him and then somehow free the Hebrews. And he tries to circumvent this event by having all the newborn men, uh, effectively an entire generation of Hebrew men killed before they can come of age. And he's, so he's trying to get out ahead of what he perceives to be a threat up to that point. And of course, you know, the irony of these things are the thing that you're afraid of and that you're trying to avoid actually happens by way of the method that you're trying to use to avoid some fate. But that is often considered to be a type because here also, because of Moses, these newborn male children are killed. Um, although Moses, that's probably not fair to say because of Moses, because Moses was one that God chose to save from those that were being killed. Whereas with the Bethlehem martyrs, it was because of Jesus that these children were killed um, because the presence of Jesus was revealed to Herod by the wise men. But in the case of Moses, it was more of an edict that came out from Pharaoh and then God, in response, well, of course, God already knows what he's going to do even before the foundations of creation, according to St. Paul, Ephesians 1. But point is, from our historical perspective, Pharaoh, chronologically speaking, Pharaoh gives the order, and God has Moses in mind to be saved as the champion that will lead his people out of bondage. And of course, the Exodus is itself one great, big, large, typological cycle. Um, but this is just one element of it where we can look at what happened to Moses and Moses being a, a significant type of Christ. Next to Joseph, he is probably, arguably, the most significant. Um, and so we can make though, but here again, we have a real historical event with a historical country with a historical leader, although he's not named, but he's referring to historical figures like Joseph and things like that. So again, typology is rooted in history. And, and here, even as I was speaking, you probably noted one of the 
pitfalls of typology, if you will, is that at some point it will break down. That's why you can't follow typology too far down the road because it will eventually unravel if, if you bring it forward too far. And finally, the, the last one we have. So we have Psalm 3412, which is seen as one of the messianic psalms. Lots of different images and statements written by King David, writing in the spirit in that psalm. And one of the verses in that psalm talks about how God is going to save those who are righteous, the one who is righteous. Wink, wink, it's David. Wink, wink, it's Jesus. And that he will, God will save this righteous one completely and that none of his bones will be broken. So this is considered to be a prophecy fulfilled at the crucifixion on Good Friday when John tells us in his gospel that they saw that Jesus was killed, so they didn't need to break his legs like they did with the other two criminals who were crucified with him. And John makes specific note referencing this verse from Psalm 34, and it was fulfilled that what it was said, you know, in, in the, in the Psalm that none of his bones will be broken. So Psalm 34 gives us the prophecy again, not connected to anything specific, no historical event or person or date specifically. It's a statement by David written within the context of what was happening to him at that time. But because it comes from the Holy Spirit, it will have a fulfillment in Jesus. The type would be found in Exodus 12, where God is prescribing what is going to happen when they celebrate the first Passover. The angel of death is going to pass over the land of Egypt in the plague that will cause the Egyptians and in particular Pharaoh to, to break and finally let God's people go. And so God is prescribing a number of things about that night, particularly about the meal they're going to celebrate. And the, the lamb that's going to be killed and have the, bl the blood spread on the doorposts, on the thresholds of the homes where the, the Hebrews are living. And, and God makes what seems to be a very offhand, strange detail that he says that when you go about celebrating the Passover and, and sacrificing this lamb, this unblemished, perfect lamb, that it is essential that none of the lamb's bones are broken. And that seems like a very odd statement until it's connected to Jesus on the cross Having died, a spear must be thrust into his side to confirm that he is in fact dead, but his bones will not be broken. But that being said, 
that type happens within, just like the other two, a very specific historical event. It doesn't really get much more historical in Scripture than, than the Passover, which will become an important feast all the way up until Jesus' time. So there we, we see the relationship between typology and prophecy. We see the sacramental elements of God's Word connected to visible uh, elements or happenings. And how, without God's word, those events are just events. You remove God's word from them, and they're just pieces of history that happened to a, a people group in the ancient Middle East. But when you add God's word, and then you add specifically Jesus, when you have that, that dimension to the typology, the typology takes on new meanings, new understandings. But you notice that it doesn't render meaningless the, the verbal prophecy that is given concerning Jesus either. And in fact, what we saw was how typology and prophecy work together, if you will, as two witnesses. So they are complementary to each other, but they are not pitted against each other. Okay, so that went a little longer than I expected, probably because of trying to properly explain the three examples. So um, we will finish up in the next installment on typology. So this will end up being two parts, and I will label it that way. Uh, and then the, the second half, if you will, of looking at typology, we are going to look at um, the different uses of typology, the different misuses of typology, so we have an understanding that when we use it, how do you use it properly? How is it used improperly? I will briefly address how the Lutheran tradition has been uneasy using typology. Um, not really so much why, I mean, the, the, the why is rather self-explanatory, but what I want to be able to bring out there is that using typology should not be something that we are shying away from and we have to be careful not to be biased against it, not to bring in the biases of previous generations of theologians. We must understand why those theologians um, were uncomfortable using typology, but at the same time, we're perhaps entering into a, a, a new phase of theology where what's old is new again and the arguments of a previous generation or the unease of a previous generation doesn't need to be brought forward into the current generation of pastors and theologians. So we will look at that. We will look at the relationship between the Old and New Testament and how typology um, brings them together. And, and finally, um, what the Holy Spirit is doing with typology.
And for that, um, we'll take a look at the large catechism. So, uh, looking forward to the second half on the topic of typology and articulating just how important it is to bring this with you when engaging scripture, whether it be devotionally or in a more formal professional context. So looking forward to that. Ever onward.